Are you looking to expand your brand this year? Want to make your business stand out above the rest? Well, there's no better way to grow than with your own podcast. Whether you're an entrepreneur, a solopreneur, a small business, or a massive company, you need a podcast in 2024. Podcast Plus is an easy and efficient way for you and your brand to join the podcast revolution. There's no better way to position your company as the go-to authority than with a podcast that showcases your industry knowledge, insights, and expertise. The studios at Podcast Plus are state-of-the-art with top-of-the-line production quality. And if you're just starting out, Podcast Plus offers professional script writing, editing magic, and can conceptualize your show, create your cover art, and get you ready to stream on all major platforms. We'll market your podcast as well, showcasing it on radio stations and digital streams across the country. Expand, enhance, and extend your company and brand and reach potential clients and customers 24-7. Find out more at podcast with the K, P-L-U-S.com. That's podcast with the K, P-L-U-S.com. This show will begin shortly after these messages from our advertisers. Advertising is what keeps the show alive. Your support means they'll continue to advertise and the podcast will continue to be free. This statement has not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Are you in bad pain? You know what I mean. Your knees hurt, your shoulder hurts, and your back. Oh my God, your back. They're constantly killing you. And I'm sure you've tried every pain pill or cream available at the drugstore. Am I right? Well, here is something you haven't tried. Pain Absolve. Pain Absolve is not available in any drugstore. The only way to get it is by calling today. We're so confident that it will work for you that we offer a free bottle with your purchase. No prescription needed. And best of all, each purchase comes with a money-back guarantee. Call now to find out how you can get Pain Absolve and get rid of your pain. Call 800-261-0783. That's 800-261-0783. 800-261-0783. Call today. 800-261-0783. Are you lacking a little something between paranormal and abnormal? You need the Into the Parabnormal store. Now open at parabnormalradio.com. From hoodies to shirts, accessories, and our digital music library, it's all available in the Into the Parabnormal store. Your purchase directly helps support the show. Thanks for buying from the Into the Parabnormal store at parabnormalradio.com. Hey, Mike, what are you doing way up on that ladder? You're going to hurt yourself. Oh, I'm trying to unclog these gutters. That's smart. I had water damage from my gutters last year. It cost me ten grand. Yo, wait, $10,000? Yeah, and from over here, it looks like water's been pouring over your clogged gutters, and it's probably doing real damage to your foundation. You need to do what I did. Get off the ladder and call Leaf Filter. Yeah, but I need to get these gutters flowing now. That's why you need to call Leaf Filter. They'll clean and realign your gutters and install their exclusive micro-mesh screen system so nothing gets in your gutters except water. So Leaf Filter protects my house from damage and means no more gutter cleaning for me? Bingo! Plus Leaf Filter has an industry-leading lifetime warranty so your gutters are covered for life. Thanks, Frank. I'm calling Leaf Filter today. Don't go another day with your home unprotected. Call 1-844-300-LEAF or go to tryleaffilter.com for your free gutter inspection. Call 1-844-300-LEAF or go to tryleaffilter.com right now for an extra 15% savings. Call 1-844-300-LEAF or go to tryleaffilter.com That's one 844 Leaf. What you believe might not be. Step into the zone of the best unknown. UFOs, aliens, 
wherever we go with Jeremy Scott. the cold, dark depths of my secret dungeon here in the deep, remote Pacific Northwest in the dark universe. Tonight, I'm Jeremy Scott. It is so good to be with you here tonight. Episodes 399 and 400 we celebrate together, and it's thanks to you. You tune in every week. It encourages me to come back every week and to do a much better show for you next week than I did last week, and that is my ultimate goal each and every week. And so tonight... Because it is episodes 399 and 400, you get four hours of me. Four hours of me. Can you take four hours of me? I'm so honored to have Dr. James Beecham tonight to prepare to have your mind blown. Because tonight we're going to head to CERN in Switzerland to explore the dark side of the universe. My guest is Dr. James Beecham. And if you've never heard him talk, he did a a TED Talk that was uh, viewed more than one and a half million times, in fact, uh, called How We Explore Unanswered Questions in Physics. If you haven't checked it out, we'll make sure we put a link up to that, and I do highly encourage that you check that out. Dr. Beecham searches for answers to the biggest open questions of physics using the largest experiment ever. We're talking about the Large Hadron Collider at CERN. He hunts for dark matter, gravitons, quantum black holes, and dark photons as a member of the Atlas Collaboration, one of the teams that discovered the Higgs boson in 2012. In addition to his research, he is a frequent speaker at SciTech and art events around the world, including the American Museum of Natural uh, History, the Royal Institution, South by Southwest and the BBC. He contributes to podcasts, radio shows, and documentaries and has been featured in the New York Times and Wired and Gizmodo, among others. I'm so uh, honored to have Dr. James Beecham, particle physicist from the Large Hadron Collider in CERN, the Atlas Experiment, and so much more. Welcome to the program, sir. How are you tonight? Or I guess for you, it's the middle of the night. It is. It's the middle of the night here, but uh, that is all good because I do everything and anything for science. So it is my pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. You don't sound like you just woke up or that you're about ready to fall asleep. So in that (laughs) case, uh, I'm looking forward to an absolutely mind-blowing conversation. And I think where we should start because, I mean, there's so so many places that we really could start. And no matter where we start, we, we could talk for a half hour or an hour on that subject alone. But a lot of the notoriety this, uh, these days, when it comes to CERN, uh, has been the Higgs boson, the God particle, as it's known. Right. So, can you first tell us what it is, and uh, I guess, get us started? <laughs> well, that is, in fact, a big mouthful, so you're right. We could be here for quite a long time, but I'll try to make it succinct. Um, it's, a, it's a difficult one to jump off on, because the Higgs boson is... Oh, boy. You know, it's quite possibly the most bizarre particle that we've ever discovered in history. Um, and it really is, it, you know, it, it almost deserves that name that it sometimes gets called in the popular press, you know, which shows up as the God particle. But to us physicists, that almost does the particle a disservice because it sort of under, it, you know, it, it undercuts just how remarkable this particle really is. Um, 
to answer the question, we kind of have to go back a couple of steps because, you know, let's let's make sure we're including people that are listening that might not actually know what CERN is really doing. Maybe they've heard CERN. Maybe they've heard what we do. They've heard of the Large Hadron Collider. Right. You know, to really explain what this particle is and why this why this discovery is so important and also to set the stage. See, I I should have just let you pick the starting point because you you did a much better job than me. Well, no, no, it's okay because it's like that's that's sort of an entry point for a lot of people, right? It's like, wait, that God particle thing, the Higgs boson—I don't even know what that is. Yeah, that's that's a good place to start, you know. And so I think it is a good starting point. But to take us there, we got to step back a couple of steps. So really, like, what is it that we're doing at the Large Hadron Collider? What is the Large Hadron Collider, right? Uh-huh. So CERN is this laboratory, right? It's a big physics laboratory that's on the border of France and Switzerland, uh, right near Geneva. And the Large Hadron Collider is the largest experiment that's there right now. But what the collider is, it's the largest machine in human history, as far as we know. Um, it's a 27-kilometer or about 16, 17-mile circular tunnel on the border of France and Switzerland, about 100 meters underground. And in this tunnel, we use superconducting magnets in these big blue tubes that go the entire circumference of this circle. And we use these magnets to accelerate protons. And these are really small particles that basically all of you are made of. And everything around you is mostly made of protons and neutrons. We take protons and we accelerate them to almost the speed of light, something like 99.9999998% of the speed of light. I know, unfortunately, it's not the speed of light, but it's pretty darn close. And then what we do is we smash, we smash these protons together millions of times a second. And when we do that, we're briefly recreating the conditions of the universe as they were about a fraction of a second after the Big Bang 14 or 13.8 billion years ago. Uh, and so that's a pretty unique thing to do because as far as we know, there's not another one of these objects in the universe. Of course, we always leave open the possibility that maybe some civilization somewhere else in the universe has a more advanced particle physics program than we do. And if they do, I absolutely can't wait to, you know, <laughs> to f- discover them and to, you know, ex- exchange notes with them. But as far as we can tell, this is the only one of its kind that really does this this uh, this ex- this type of experiment. And so the place where you collide these protons together, you better build it by gigantic detector because some quantum field theory magic is going to happen right at that collision point. You know, for the reasons that I just said, you're recreating the conditions of the universe just a fraction of a second after the Big Bang. And the conditions back then were very, very, very different than they are now, as you might imagine. Um, and so the, you know, the, the thing to keep in mind is that, you know, the two things that are going on, one is that we're colliding these protons a very, very large number of times per second, like 40 million times a second. And then every single one of those collisions sends out a huge spray of other particles. It's almost like you have two huge fire hoses that are extremely high and very, very collision, right? That's going to make a crazy, crazy, uh, that's going to make a crazy, crazy. Um, amount of stuff that's flying out. And so what you have to do is you build a gigantic detector. And so this is the one that I work on, one of the ones that I work on called Atlas. And Atlas is not just any standard detector. It's something like six stories high and it's 46 meters long. I forget how many feet that is. I've lived in Europe for too long. It's 46 meters long. Yeah, it's like a gigantic uh, soda can tip side. Okay. 
hold that thought. Dr. James Beecham from CERN is with us. I'm Jeremy Scott. We're just getting going. Remember, he is on the other side of the world. It's just amazing that we can have this conversation and not alone with somebody so qualified as Dr. James Beecham. Our program tonight is Dark Universe, and I'm Jeremy Scott. We will be right back. Miss the show live? Listen to it anytime, as many times as you'd like at ParabnormalRadio.com. Have you noticed that well-known and controversial talk show hosts have recently been censored on the internet by corporate and political interests? Hey guys, it's Clyde Lewis here with Ground Zero Radio, and in order to counter against the suppression of information, we've decided to create our own private digitalized playground. It's called Aftermath.media. It's an exclusive online multimedia library featuring videos, movies, audio clips, archive shows, ebooks, documents, and much, much more. Our news aggregator, Newsifer, provides current news relating to many of the topics we cover. We'll also be hosting the Ground Zero friendly podcasts like Into the Paraabnormal with Jeremy Scott and the Secret Teachings with Ryan Gable. Aftermath is a social media platform along with the chat room to interact with many of our listeners. Mobile apps for Android and Apple will soon be available at Aftermath.media. The monthly subscription to Aftermath.media is $9.99 a month. This includes exclusive access to the library of archived Ground Zero podcasts and shows. If you're interested in having access to our podcast, it's only $4.99 a month. Thanks for supporting Ground Zero by subscribing to Aftermath.media. Sign up today, Aftermath.media. That's Aftermath.media. Welcome to the largest particle physics laboratory in the world. Just one of the experiments at the Large Hadron Collider, itself the largest machine in the world. At the moment, we are um, upgrading some components of the accelerator chain uh, to be able to start data taking an operation again in 2021 with more intense proton beams and so to produce, to be able to produce more collisions. This is about amassing knowledge about the origin of, of mass and the origin of the universe. It's, it's about understanding how the particles that we know are made of, how they get mass and where they come from. No boring politics, just tales of UFOs, aliens, Bigfoot and earth-shattering science. Traveling into the paranormal. All right, Dr. James Beecham, particle physicist at CERN with us. I hated to do it. We had to take the break, so we're back now. And I'd like you to uh, continue, Dr. Beecham, uh, where you were, explaining uh, to us uh, what's going on at CERN and with the Large Hadron Collider and uh, all this cool, mind-blowing stuff. Yeah, well, we were getting to uh, the Higgs boson, right? That was the question that we started with, which is a totally great place to start because what is the Higgs boson? So I think where I stopped off was um, the Atlas detector is one of the ones is the detector that I work on. And it's this thing. It's about six stories high and it's 46 meters long and it's 100 meters underground. And it's more or less it's almost like a 100 megapixel camera that uh, takes three dimensional photos 40 million times a second. And these photos are not just any old photos. I mean, I think, you know, you know, the photos on your phone are really awesome, you know, cats and your breakfast and things like this. But these photos that we take could, if we look at them just in the right way, they could have evidence of some of the 
biggest of answers to some of the biggest open questions in in science, like what is dark matter? You know, what what happened right at the moment of the Big Bang? Uh, and you know, are there pal- parallel universes? Uh, are there extra dimensions of space? All these kinds of things. And so we build up this huge data set. In some, by some estimates, it's the largest unique data set in human history. And then people like me sift through the data um, after the fact, and we do very complicated uh, data analysis to try to see if we found anything interesting because overwhelmingly when we smash these protons together what happens is stuff that's really really boring uh, not boring in the sense that it's not interesting but just something that we've we understand quite well right so you collide protons normally what happens there's sort of this kind of glancing blow and it kind of goes bleh and that's fine we've understand we've seen this a million times a billion times a trillion times we don't need to see that all the time but occasionally if if you know, if there's new particles out there for us to discover, occasionally you'll make one of these things in the collision and it will live for a tiny fraction of a second before it then decays or dies or splits into other particles that those are the ones that hit our detector. And so this is the kind of key thing. We'll never be able to see something like a Higgs boson or if we're looking for things like dark matter particles or these other, you know, these other force carrying particles that could be evidence of other forces of nature. We'll never actually see them directly. We can only indirectly detect that they were there by examining very closely the decay products of these particles. And so it's it's kind of similar to what you think about when you think about like, you know, radioactive decay, where it's not radioactive in our case. But for example, you know, you, radioactive decay is like you have a certain type of like uranium or, or something like that that's sitting there. And at a certain at a kind of regular rate, it'll just start to spit off other particles, right? It's kind of the same thing here. What happens is we, we we, we collide two protons together. We, if you create a Higgs boson, it'll live for something like 10 to the minus 22 seconds, 10 to the power minus 22 seconds before it then splits into other things. So that's basically no time at all. So we can only see its outgoing, you know, its outgoing products and we work backwards to determine if we've seen something new. And the Higgs boson is something that's not, it's, it, we don't, you know, if you have 40 million collisions per second and you do this for weeks and months and an entire year, you will probably only make a few thousand Higgs bosons, a few thousand versus 40 million times, you know, how that's crazy. That's almost nothing. And so that's the kind of conditions that we're under to, you know, to try to discover this thing called the Higgs boson, which leads me to the reason why the Higgs boson is such a fantastic, amazing discovery. And it comes down to something that has puzzled scientists for a very, very long time. And this is the concept of mass. So mass to you and me is not the same thing as what mass is to a particle. You know, so to you and me, you, we use the word mass in lots of different ways at the bar, right? Or, you know, like look at that massive building. But for particles, mass is just a, it's just a property put there by nature. We don't change it. We can only measure it, right? So if I'm a particle, so for example, we, you know, an electron. You take your favorite atom, it usually has some protons and neutrons in the middle and then some electrons flying around. If I were able to zoom in on that electron, it would probably have a zero volume. Like it would actually take up no space. I know it's weird to like wrap the head around, but it's possible that it takes up no space, but it can still carry properties, right, that we can measure. Things like energy and charge and momentum. And an electron also has a non-zero value for this thing called mass. And for the longest time, no one could really understand why mass was there. Why, why, does, why should this particle have mass? There's no real reason why it, the electron should have a certain mass and something called, you know, the, the, the muon should have a different mass. And then, you know, you, you put the quarks together inside of a proton and they have different masses. It really made no sense. 
back in the 60s and 70s, people were, extre- you know, they're stroking their beards and like, hmm, I wonder. And they realized that this could be really ex- well explained if there was some kind of invisible jelly that permeated all of space in the universe everywhere all at once. Dr. Beecham, are you back with us? Yes. Okay. Can you just pick up back where you were? We, 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 we lost you about a minute ago. Yeah, for sure. So I was talking about how the, you know, there was this, this postulate that, uh, of a totally bizarre idea, which is that there's basically an invisible jelly or like a honey that permeates all of space all the time. And in, if I'm a particle that has something called mass, as I zip through the universe, I am dragged a little bit by this jelly. A little bit of my energy gets stuck into a point that we can measure as mass. And some particles do this and some others don't. So for now, this part it zips through this invisible jelly, this so-called field. It zips through this jelly. It is not slowed down at all. But others are. Like an electron is slowed down a little bit. A muon is slowed a little bit more. Something called the top quark is slowed down a lot. Because that's a very big mass. And again, this is just something that we, you know, there's put there by nature and it's not up to us to change. We can only measure it. And so that, you know, so that's the reason why, you know, why this thing called the Higgs field was interesting. However, if this, and that could be completely game changing, there's no other field like this Higgs field. All the other so-called fields that we know in physics, these are so-called vector fields. If you remember your math, there's this notion of like numbers and then vectors that have like directions and that kind of a thing. There's, we've never seen something that's a so-called scalar field. You don't need to know the details, but think about what I said. If there is a, an invisible jelly that permeates all of space everywhere. And if I'm moving my hand through space, my, my hand is moving through this jelly. I'm not feeling this jelly. There's no way for me to detect it. What does it even mean for me to try to figure out how, how could I demonstrate that that jelly really exists? Well, one way you could do it is a bit weird. So imagine, mm, I'm trying to think of a good way to explain this. Imagine, imagine if you had a very popular, now stay with me, Stay with me on this one, Jeremy. It's, trust me, it's good. Yeah. Um, the imagine that you had a very popular Instagram account that was devoted to muddy rivers. Now I know there's there's very there are very popular Instagram accounts that are devoted to very weirder things than that. So I think it's okay. Muddy rivers. So, and then your friend told you, you know, you'd go and take a photo of a muddy river. And it's great for like a bridge above above, and everybody would get seven hundred thousand likes. Would be great. So then your friend tells you, oh, I've got an amazing muddy river for you. It's fantastic. It's, you go in the middle of the night, and you look down, you'll see this great muddy river. Trust me, it's great. You go, okay, so you go to this, this river, you look over, you look down, and you can't see anything. So maybe it's just barely illuminated by the moon. You look down, it doesn't look like a river at all. It's kind of far down, so you can't tell. And you look down, and it just looks like brown dirt. And you're like, okay, I can't tell that anything's moving there. You think maybe it's possible, but it just looks like nothing. How are you going to ever demonstrate that there could be a river down there? Yeah, and, and J- Dr. James Meacham is going to tell us when our program continues with him. Dark Universe, I'm Jeremy Scott from the cold, dark depths of a secret dungeon somewhere deep in the remote Pacific Northwest. We'll be right back. We're streaming 24-7 on the Parabnormal Radio app from TalkStream Live and at ParabnormalRadio.com. Listen up, guys. Are you experiencing any of the following? Fatigue? Less drive? 
Poor performance? If so, you may be one of the nearly 30 million men in the U.S. today dealing with ED. But did you know you don't have to pay hundreds for a prescription anymore? And you don't have to deal with the hassle of seeing the doctor or the embarrassment of going to the pharmacy for a certain pill. Now, with one free call, you can find out how Herbal Virility Max can help you feel like a man again. For over a decade, Herbal Virility Max has helped guys just like you put a smile back on their face with improved performance and drive. Call today at 800-509-4017. That's 800-509-4017. Save the money, save the hassles, and get the better blue pill. Call 800-509-4017. That's 800-509-4017. Are you intrigued by Paranormal Talk Radio? You'll love the new Paranormal Radio app from TalkStream Live. You'll find a great selection of talk shows covering UFOs, ghosts, strange phenomena, and much more. Download the Paranormal Radio app now and start listening to the very best in Paranormal Talk entertainment, including the network you're listening to right now. The Paranormal Radio app, free in Google Play and the iOS App Store. Abnormal News, I'm Brad Bernards. The Independent reports several liquid bodies have been found under the South Pole of Mars, according to a major new study. RT America's John Huddy reports. It's an exciting discovery reported in the online journal Nature Astronomy. Researchers say they have found several liquid bodies of water under Mars's South Pole, proving previous research and studies there could be a large lake buried beneath the Martian surface. The findings could be key in the search for alien life on the planet. The researchers note giving life as we know it requires liquid water to survive. They will also be key to planetary protection work during missions to explore them. The researchers call for future work to better examine Mars, its chemistry, and whether there might be any traces of what they call astrobiological activity or alien life. Last week, a team of researchers told the world they had detected a molecule in the upper cloud layers of Venus, typically only created by living creatures here on Earth. LiveScience.com reports the blockbuster announcement of finding phosphine in the clouds of Venus made a major splash in the news, but pushback began appearing even as details of the results were coming to light. Astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson tells Fox Business, Until the day arrives where we have magic telescopes that can see to the surfaces of shrouded planets and watch for creatures crawling back and forth, until that day arrives, which may be never, we have to be satisfied with not finding life directly, but finding the the signature of life, the biomarkers that betray the existence of life. Even those who are skeptical believe the findings to be intriguing. There's more news at ParaAbnormalRadio.com. I'm Brad Bernards, ParaAbnormal News.
down, the strange comes out into the parabnormal. Dr. James Beecham is my guest. He's a particle physicist at CERN. And um, Dr. Beecham was talking to us, I believe, about this river of jelly. And, uh, well, how do you convince somebody that this river of jelly works? Dr. Beecham, please continue. Yeah. Well, yeah, I'm getting to the point here, I promise. So the the whole point is that you're trying to demonstrate that this theorized thing, so some smart theorist came up with this idea that there's this invisible jelly that permeates all space everywhere, and it's the thing that actually gives masses to these particles that make us, you know, make up our, our body, you know, the, the quarks inside of our protons and neutrons, uh, the, the electrons that are swarming around in our body, and these things have mass, and we had no idea why. So if you want to prove that this this uh, invisible jelly exists, you you know you have to figure out a clever way to do so. Just like the muddy river down below, that it doesn't look like it's moving at all. Don't down below this this bridge. One way you could prove is if you drop a rock down there. So if you see a splash, then you know that there's a river there. And if there's not a splash, then it kind of goes thud, and there's and you know that there's no river there. So in this case the splash, the, the, the river would be this invisible jelly that permeates all the space, which is this Higgs field. And then the splash itself, the little splash, would be the Higgs boson particle, which would splash into existence for a small amount of time before then it goes back and it goes into the smoothness of the, of the river. Or in the particle physics case, it's, it lives for a tiny fraction of a second before then splitting the things that hit our detectors. And so that's the way we had. And then the rock, of course, is the Large Hadron Collider. So that's the way that we finally proved that this particle exists. We got a we got a you know a high enough energy machine, the Large Hadron Collider, to be able to smash particles together and really just smack reality just right, so that you could make this little wobble, this splash, this Higgs boson exist before it then splits into other things. And we finally discovered that 2012. It was great champagne and celebration. But the truth is, we'll never be able to know the full you know the full everything about this particle, even with another 15 to 20 years worth of data taking at the LHC. And that's a bit shocking because our full and complete understanding of this particle really, really has something to do with what the fate, the ultimate fate of our universe could be. So why is it uh, called the God particle? Doesn't have anything to do with religion, does it? No, it does not. That was an unfortunately named uh, thing uh, back in the day. I don't remember when that actually happened. There was a very famous physicist um, who had a, wrote a book about the Higgs boson, and I, there's some discussion as to whether the publisher convinced him to call it the God particle. Anyway, anyway I mean, the, the idea is that it, has, it plays such a fundamental and pivotal role in our understanding of you know, the universe itself that it's akin to a sort of like God-style thing. But physicists don't use that name at all, so I, I'm not sure exactly why. And again, I think it's sort of, a lot of physicists, we think it sort of does a disservice to this, uh, to this particle because, because religions and deities, these things are, you know, these, these things are invented by humans, and the Higgs boson existed way before we did, and it will continue to exist even after we're gone. In layman's term, why is it such a big deal? Yeah, it's, it's a big deal because it 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 demonstrates to us that there are so many things out there that you know we don't know anything about it's it hints at this notion of the dark universe in a way which is the title of the show right is because this invisible jelly is dark to us right we i can't take a flashlight and shine it and see this invisible higgs field that's everywhere i need to do you know, I, I need to do something very special i need to do a, a you know build a very gigantic experiment to really understand what this particle is 
And it's important, you know, in, in that sense, because, you know, it just it, it indicates to us that there's more out there in the universe than what we can see with our eyes. And we need, you know, we need to, under, to understand this. We need to go to extreme lengths sometimes. But it also is very important, actually, for you and I to even be here to have this conversation, <laughs> because, the, again, the Higgs boson particle is proof positive that this thing called the Higgs field exists. And if the Higgs field didn't exist, if it hadn't suddenly turned on, when the universe was something like 10 to the minus 20, 10 to the minus 15 seconds old or something like that, if that had not turned on, all of the particles in the universe, they would still be here, but they would have zero masses. There would be no masses for any of these particles. And that would be terrible because if the electron, for example, had a zero mass, atoms would never have formed in the early universe. And if atoms had never formed, you and I would not be here to have this conversation. So the existence of the Higgs boson is a pretty big deal. All right. Does dark matter fall into this equation? You're talking about mass earlier. Yeah. Well, dark matter is a bit of a different story, but it's somewhat related. Dark matter is another one of these big kind of open questions that we have in physics and in science that we have been trying to solve for a very long time, and we just don't, we, we cannot find the answer to this thing. Dark matter is, is an effect that we know for a fact exists, but we don't know what it is for the following reasons. So I, I hope, Jeremy, that you like Hubble photographs. I hope that your audience loves Hubble photographs. I love Hubble photographs. I so love take your favorite yeah. Hubble photograph. Yeah, absolutely. You like these? Okay, good. So take your favorite spiral galaxy, you know, these beautiful like spiral galaxy photographs, right? And you count up all the stuff that you can see in that, in that galaxy with your eye. Maybe you can't do it with a photo, but you know, astronomers, my astronomer friends are very good at that. They can count up all the stuff you can see with your eyes. And now take your favorite, take your favorite textbook on gravity. I assume all of you have a textbook on gravity next to your bedside like I do. Um, you take your favorite textbook on gravity and plug the, that, you know, the amount of stuff that you have calculated by, you know, the stuff you can see with your eyes in that galaxy, plug the, that amount of mass into the equation that says how fast that galaxy should be spinning. It's a pretty straightforward calculation. And it, trust me, it is. You just put the mass in there. It tells you how fast everything should be spinning. And then you go out and measure how fast it's spinning, which, again, my astronomer colleagues are very good at doing. And every single galaxy is spinning way faster than it should if it's only made up with stuff of matter than what we can see with our eyes. And it's, it's not just one galaxy. It's all of them. And so, therefore, there has to be more stuff there than what we can see with our eyes. Or maybe gravity is completely wrong, which it probably is not. Uh, you know, gravity has been understood quite well for a while. So there have to be more things, more stuff there than what we can see with our eyes. And if it's not light, if it doesn't interact with light, with photons, that means it's dark. Therefore, dark matter. So we have empirical, direct empirical evidence that dark matter exists. However, we have no idea what type of particle it is, if it is a particle. And that's a really bizarre thing because, you know, what that means is that there's actually dark matter going through all of us all the time right now. I think each one of us has about a billion particles of dark matter flowing through our bodies every second. We've never felt it. It's never, it's never uh, touched us at all. And that just means that it's one of these things like the Higgs field that we have to 
we have to figure out some clever way to try to determine what this stuff is. And we've been looking for this for decades, and we still have not come up you know, with any evidence as to what type of a particle it is. If yeah. any of you guys have ideas, please let me know. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah. I mean, you guys are the real smart ones. I just find this stuff fascinating from, you know, from a layman's perspective because it all just sounds amazing, and I'm just awe at, at everything that CERN's doing. So what's going on with uh, the Large Hadron Collider right now? Hmm. So we're currently in a bit of a shutdown mode for maintenance. And so that does not mean that we're all slacking off. And in fact, this is a, if you're going to choose a time for a pandemic that would keep us away from the laboratory, this is a pretty good time because we were already in a kind of a, uh, you know, we're in a shutdown mode for maintenance. And so what we're doing is we're doing some maintenance to the machines uh, so that we can have another set of data taking uh, starting next year. But then we're also doing some upgrades and things for the future future, which would be on the kind of like five-year time frame, which is when we're really going to crank up the juice on the Large Hadron Collider in the sense that not the energy, we're not going to go to higher energies, but we're going to go to higher uh, intensities, so-called rate of collision. Like, And what that does is allow us to look for things that are not just a needle in a haystack, but like a needle in a universe instead. And it really allow us to take like 10 times, you know, or 10 to 100 times the data of what we've taken so, so far. So it's a, it's a really exciting time uh, at CERN. Um, and so, yeah, that's what we're doing now. We're sort of like we're, we're laying the groundwork for this so-called high luminosity era, which is coming up in a few years, which, again, will really crank up the juice on the amount of data. And that, what that does, of course, is allow us that if there's some new thing that we're looking for, you know, that we haven't seen yet, maybe it's just because we haven't taken enough data. Maybe, you know, the, like the Higgs boson, we only make a few thousand of those over a year. Maybe the dark matter particle that we're looking for, uh, maybe we only make, you know, two of those per year. And so we need to take more and more data to hopefully find evidence of this thing. Dr. James Beecham will wrap up the hour with him from CERN. He's the particle physicist with the Alice experiment there. And uh, we'll be back right after this. Stream us on your favorite apps from anywhere in the world, anytime, day or night. Into the Pair of Normal with Jeremy Scott. So, you love talk radio, then you'll love TalkStreamLive.com. TalkStream Live is always on, 24-7, with the best streaming talk shows. Find your favorite talkers and discover some new ones. It's free, readily available online, or on mobile with any smartphone or tablet. Finding your favorite talk shows all in one place has gotten a whole lot easier. Just go to TalkStreamLive.com. Be sure to download the free apps from Google Play or the iTunes App Store. Witches, warlocks, goblins, and ghouls. Join us for a two-day Halloween extravaganza featuring the biggest names in the paranormal universe. Friday, October the 30th and Saturday, October the 31st. Get your tickets before they sell out at thefringefest.com. That is thefringefest.com. Trick or truth, the choice is yours. (laughs) Thefringefest.com. physics that has been really bothering me since I was a little kid. 
And it's related to a question that scientists have been asking for almost 100 years with no answer. How, how do the smallest, do the things, smallest in nature, things in nature, the particles of the, particles quantum, of world, the quantum world, match up, match up with the largest, with the things, largest in nature, things in nature, planets, planets, and, planets and, stars and stars and galaxies, galaxies held galaxies. together by gravity? Live from his COVID quarantine bunker, it's Jeremy Scott traveling somewhere between abnormal and paranormal. We are uh, traveling into the dark universe. This is uh, something that CERN does in Geneva, Switzerland, using these big bang machines. Really just absolutely fascinating. The Large Hadron Collider, the largest experiment in history, searching for answers to the biggest open questions in physics. And uh, currently on hold, I guess, uh, getting revamped, revitalized, and going to be able to do bigger and better things. Just absolutely fascinating. And opening our mind to this all tonight is Dr. James Beecham, and he's a particle physicist. His website, uh, jbbeecham.com. All right, uh, Dr. Beecham, let's, let's talk more about the LHC. What is it actually do what's the point of the uh, research and um, why was it built yeah so the lhc um this large hadron collider was built you know the idea for it came about it was being kicked around in the 80s and the in the 90s um because there were some big open questions of physics back then and in fact most of them are still open <laughs> uh it was built to, you know, for a lot of reasons, what one again was, uh, one of the big ones was to chase down finally this particle called the Higgs boson particle or the so-called God particle that the name that no physicist actually uses. Um, and that was one of the big, the big open questions. And people realized back in the eighties and the, in the nineties that to really answer the question, we in fact had to do something extreme. We had to go to extreme lengths in, and, and when I say extreme, I mean extreme in terms of energy. And so the reason that's important here is because of Einstein. Uh, and, uh, you know, in physics, very often, most of the things we're talking about, eventually they go back to Einstein. In this case, it's also true. So you remember Einstein's most famous equation, right, which is this E equals MC squared. What that means is that there's an equivalence between energy and then mass. And mass is this thing we were talking about earlier, which is just an intrinsic property of a particle. You know, it's, it, some particles have a high mass, some particles have a low mass, and that's, that's just the way it is. And then energy is the part that we as humans, uh, you know, experimentalists, we can control if we work hard. Energy is the, in this case, is the kinetic energy of, of a particle. You know, you remember your high school physics, kinetic energy, potential energy, these kinds of things. Kinetic energy is the energy of movement. So if I have a particle like a proton and I make it go faster and faster and faster, it has more and more and more energy. And that's important because look at that equal sign in the equation. If nature has a particle with a mass M that's very, very high, and, you know, the universe around us right now is actually quite low energy, just everything going around on us right now, the electrons in your, your body and everything, it's very, very low energy. So there's no Higgs bosons around you, for example, right now. But if nature at some point was using some particle with a very high mass M, and we as humans have only ever built a collider experiment that gets particles up to a, a certain energy E, we'll never be able to discover this new particle. So that was the weird thing about this Higgs boson back in like the 70s and 80s and 90s. People realized that the Higgs boson particle was predicted 
but no one had any idea what its mass was going to be. This is very different from other, some of the other particles we discovered, things like the W and the Z bosons, whatever those are. Those, those, the masses of those were kind of predicted, and that's nice for an experimentalist. It tells you how big of a machine you need to build to discover them. That was not the case with the Higgs boson. People were just like, I don't know. We know it exists, but we have no clue what its mass is. And that's a bit frustrating and daunting because to go to higher and higher energies when all else is kept, kept equal, you have to go to bigger and bigger machines. That's just the way it is. You can't get to extremely high energies on a tabletop. You have to build a bigger machine. That's why the LHC is so big. And so what they said is like, well, okay, we can make a huge jump up in energy from what's ever been done before if we, in fact, use the tunnel that was there before for another project in the 80s and 90s called LEP, the Electron-Positron Collider. It's uh, you know, colliding different particles at a much, much lower energy. And if you put special magnets inside, these magnets that we, in fact, we have to keep them colder than outer space so that they, they attain this, this uh, property called superconductivity to really get up to the fields, the magnetic fields that we need to bend these protons around this ring. If you do that, you can get to a very, very high energy and hopefully high enough that you'll either find the Higgs boson particle or if it's not there, you'll come up, you'll start to, you know, that, that's almost more interesting in a way. If it's not around the corner in this energy, that would make us start going back to our assumptions and maybe start, you know, trying to see if there's a flaw somewhere in our thinking so that maybe we can come up with a way to explain all this extra stuff. Because basically the Higgs boson had to be there. It had to be somewhere, either that or something else was doing this job, like it, because it, the Higgs boson doesn't, it doesn't exist on its own in our theories. It's related to other things that we can observe. So that was one of the big reasons people wanted to go to high enough energies that you would hopefully either find the Higgs boson particle or rule it out, which would all, all, almost be more interesting. And in addition to that, these big experiments like the LHC, they're really just what we call exploration machines. We, they're called discovery machines because they're, again, this, this, you know, this analogy with smashing things together to hopefully coax things into existence that you've never seen before. Again, when we go to higher energy machines, bigger colliders, higher energies, you're actually going farther and farther back toward the moment of the Big Bang. So with the previous experiment, we could get up to something like 10 when the universe was about, you know, 10 to the minus five seconds old or 10 to the minus 10 seconds old. With the LHC, we can get to when the energy universe was something like 10 to the minus 15, 10 to the minus 20 seconds old. And these, this is, these are the places where all of these particles that we, that hopefully could explain the biggest open questions uh, of science. That's the time when they could have existence in a, existed in abundance and they were all kind of bumping into each other. So, these, so to do that, to really get back to those times and to those high energies where these new discoveries could be waiting for us, just waiting, you have to go to bigger machines. And these big ones are so-called you know, discovery machines. You can think of it this way. Imagine there, you know, you're, there's a big flat wall in front of you and somebody tells you, you know what, somewhere behind that wall is a little spigot that will start spitting out Higgs bosons. And you're like, oh, okay, well, where is it? And they're like, I don't know. You have to search everywhere. And so you're like, okay, so what do you do? Do you really take, you start with like a little nail or a pair of tweezers? No, you take a big hammer and you start bashing around with the, with the wall, hopefully trying to find it. Eventually, with this big mallet, you'll find the place and it'll start spitting out some Higgs bosons. And you're like, yes, I did it. But then to really understand what the particle is, you need to then start looking at that little spigot with the little Higgs bosons coming out with a pair of tweezers instead. 
So that's the place we're at now where we have these big discovery machines. And it's not just the Higgs boson uh, when the LHC was going to turn on. It was a lot of other things. People didn't understand. We still don't understand why gravity is so weak compared to all the other forces of nature. I mean, it seems strong because, you know, you're being kept in your chair right now. But think about it. I can raise my hand into the air on my own. I can raise my coffee cup into the air. I am beating gravity briefly, briefly by holding my coffee cup in the air. I am winning against gravity. <laughs> but I can, never, I can never pull a quark out of the proton in my hand. Yeah. It just means that the, the gravity is really, really weak compared to the other forces of nature. It's like when you're a child and you think you can be a witch and you can defy gravity. And then you jump and you realize that you can't and you come crashing to the floor it's kind of like that gravity gravity always wins eventually yes (laughs) all right hold that thought we are at our top of the hour break dr james beecham with us tonight from cern i'm jeremy scott our program tonight dark universe we will be right back stay with us please a weekly digital newsletter filled with the latest paranormal news, trending topics, and fresh articles from some of the most popular critical thinkers in the community today. Stay informed on your favorite paranormal podcasts and live streaming talk shows. Interact with the telepath and upload your paranormal story or pics. It could be featured in an upcoming edition. Sign up right now for the free telepath newsletter at paranormal.radio. That's paranormal.radio. International or Skype callers can get through to Into the Paranormal at ITP51 or just click the button at paranormalradio.com. Dr. James Beecham, my guest from CERN. I'm Jeremy Scott from the cold, dark depths of a secret dungeon somewhere deep in the remote Pacific Northwest. Uh, Just a fascinating first hour that we've had so far talking about... um, so much fascinating science and whatnot that goes on at CERN. And uh, Dr. Beecham was talking about some of the forces and how, how gravity so appears to be weaker than the others. Please continue. Yeah, so gravity is a bit of a puzzle, um, which might be weird uh, for you know from one perspective, because like I said earlier, we do understand gravity quite well. Um, however, we don't understand how it fits with all of our other understanding, and that's a bit of a bit of a bizarre, long-standing puzzle. Um, gravity is best described by this thing called general relativity, and you might have heard of general rel- relativity, which is this, uh, you know, this uh, idea of Einstein's back in 1915 that really has some fascinating stuff associated to it. it, it you know, before 
before uh, Einstein came around, people had the understanding of gravity, in, you know, in one kind of way. That it would be for a force very similar to the other types of forces, where you'd have, you know, two big bodies that would kind of pull on each other in a normal kind of force way. But Einstein came around and pointed out that, you know what, this is, in fact, we could understand the way that big things operate in the universe, the way that stars go around each other, and you know, in the galaxies, the way the galaxies move around, the way that, you know, in fact, the planets go around in the solar system, things like that. If instead, gravity is not just a normal, regular force in, in the same sense of the other ones, but instead, gravity is actually a warping of space-time itself. So, you know, the, the classic example or the classic metaphor is like a big rubber sheet. Imagine if we were, you know, if we were, had four of us and we were pulling on a big rubber sheet on all, you know, on all directions. And then I put a bowling ball in the middle. The bowling ball would deform the rubber sheet, Right. And so then if I take a little marble and I flick the marble in the direction of the, you know, not directly at the bowling ball, but around the way, uh, you know, the side, the, the marble, from its perspective, it thinks that it's going in a straight direction. It doesn't know anything about the sheet. It doesn't know anything about the, the bowling ball, but it thinks it's going in a, in a straight in a straight line. But from our perspective of above, the, the, the little marble traces a trajectory that's bent, and it gets bent around this bowling ball. So Einstein pointed out that, in fact, that's really how gravity is working. So everything that is affected by gravity is, is in effect, falling around another body. So the moon, for example, is continuously, quote-unquote, falling around the Earth, and vice versa. And the Earth is continually or continuously falling around the sun because they make you know, a, a place in space that has a lot of stuff you know, energy density or energy and mass all in one space, it creates this kind of warping of space and time. And that, that gives us the effect of something called gravity. And that is completely different than all of the other forces that we know of. There's only three other ones that we know of. This is electromagnetism. This is the one that, you know, that you know and love very well. Uh, and then there's, there's one called the weak nuclear force, and there's one called the strong force. And all of these have strength, have the strength of interaction between things that feel these forces much, much higher than, than gravity just overall. And they operate in a very, very different way because they are best described by the rules of the extremely small, which is so-called quantum mechanics. So we get into the quantum world, things like the strong force and the weak force and electromagnetism, in fact, operate on extremely small scales. And because of that, you can describe them with this thing called quantum mechanics or quantum field theory is better is the better way to think about it. But the rules, the mathematical rules of quantum field theory and the mathematical rules of general relativity, those do not work when you try to put them together. Because, you know, like we physicists, we like to think we're pretty smart. We like to think we understand everything. And so we think, okay, we have these two fantastic pillars of science without which either of them, all of our understanding of science would completely collapse gravity understand by general relativity and then this thing called you know uh, uh quantum mechanics or quantum field theory describes the three other known forces of nature you might think all of the forces of nature they must have something to do do with each other uh, you know for example if you go to extremely high energies like inside of a black hole or right at the moment of the big bang or you go to extreme conditions these forces must have something to do with each other. So why not why don't we just put the mathematics together of these things? And if you do that 
everything breaks. <laughs> you get things like, you know, if you put the, the, the mathematics of general relativity and the mathematics of quantum field theory together with the other forces, everything goes crazy. You get things like uh, infinite probabilities or uh, probabilities greater than one. I don't even know what that means, right? Infinite energies. You can't have infinite energy de- by definition. So all these things indicate that there's something missing. There's something wrong with our formulation of these two things separately so that when we want to put them together, we can maybe come up with an answer. And so this is what this is one of the many reasons is one of the many questions that we are, you know, poised to at least hopefully shed some light on at prod, uh, at at big machines like the Large Hadron Collider um, for a lot of different reasons. One is that one of the answers to the way that gravity could seem so very weak and behave in a very, very different way than the other forces is, in fact, maybe gravity is not actually super, super weak compared to the other forces. And, you know, let me go ahead and put a number on it. So if the other forces of nature are around, you know, like one or one over 10, you know, style of, uh, uh, you know, of, of, of forces, like, for example, the strong force, this is the strongest force we know of. This is the one that keeps quarks and gluons held together into protons. And that's good because, you know, you don't want your protons falling apart. That would be very bad for not just you, but for, you know, the entire economy yeah, too. Yeah. But so the, the, so the strong force is the strongest one that we know of, and that we give that a, a strength of one. You can't get any stronger than that. And then you got the electromagnetic, which is a little bit smaller than that, and then the weak force is a little bit smaller than, you know. So those are all in the same realm. But then gravity compared to the strong force is a strength of 10 to the minus 39, 10 to the power minus 39, which is basically nothing. That's crazy. So one of the ways that we could explain this is maybe gravity, in fact, exists in other dimensions of space beyond the three that you and I experience. And what we experience is only a tiny slice, a so-called three-dimensional slice of a higher dimensional gravity. And if we were to somehow, which makes it seem very weak, and if we were to be able to somehow measure in these other dimensions of space, again, I'm not exactly sure how to do that, but if we could do it, we would be able to measure that gravity is still in the same realm as these other forces. And that sounds crazy, right? It's like, how am I going to demonstrate that other dimensions of space exist? This seems like a high, you know, a, a, a very high, you know, this, this sounds like a, 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 you know, a tall order, right? So one of the ways that other dimensions of space could exist is if they're tiny, tiny, and curled up. And it sounds like that's what we always go to in particle physics because that's what we're dealing with. We're dealing with extremely small things and how they, how they relate to the extremely largest things. And, you know, we're very extreme, physicists are. So these extra dimensions of space could be tiny and curled up everywhere. You know, basically at every point in space, there would be a little tiny loop that you and I don't experience. Again, this is, this is why you know, another one of these kind of dark universe things, this is stuff that you and I can't see with our eyes, we can't experience directly, but it does exist. And if we were to somehow, and, and gravity somehow preferentially exists into these other dimensions of, of space, and you might say, that's crazy. There's no way that there's extra dimensions of space all around me. That's, that's crazy talk. But think about it from, you know, it, it, think about it from another perspective. If you, you know, for, watch, think, for example, that you saw like a tightrope walker that was going between two buildings, right? And she's going back and forth on this, on this tightrope from a distance. You're looking from a distance and you're just crossing your fingers and, you know, oh, please don't fall, please don't fall. And to, from, a, from a distance, the tightrope walker, she only has basically one dimension that she can go in, forward and backward. She can't go to the side if she falls. And that's pretty much it, right? 
However, if you then were to zoom in, take a drone or something and zoom in on the, on the, 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 the rope itself, suddenly if you're a little ant that's on the rope, you have an extra dimension that I couldn't see when I was far away. You have back and forth, but you can also crawl around the rope itself. That's an, uh, another dimension of space that was invisible if I look it up from a distance. So one way that gravity could potentially be so measured, so weak to us, is if the rest of gravity exists in these tiny curled-up dimensions everywhere. And one of the possible ways that we were hoping to maybe, you know, shed some light on this, or maybe not hoping, but one of the possible discoveries that could have appeared at the Large Hadron Collider is if you were to able to just smack reality just right with these high-energy collisions, you might be able to just uh, create a so-called uh, hyperdimensional graviton, and this is a particle of gravity that would wobble briefly into these other dimensions of space before then snapping back into the three dimensions of our space and then spitting off particles that we can see in our detectors in a characteristic pattern that would indicate that these gravitons exist and then hopefully help us maybe shed some light on why gravity is so weak. So far, we do not see evidence of these hyperdimensional gravitons and no extra dimensions of space. But again, we've only taken a small amount of data that we're ever going to take at the Large Hadron Collider, and there are ex there are new you know uh, there are new collider projects that are in the pipeline at the moment. So the future ones, we still have the hope to maybe shed light on this. All right, I want to catch up on some questions that have been coming through to, through some various channels. Uh, so let's get to a couple of these. Uh, one of them involves says, can or could the LHC Large Hadron Collider create particles by using massive energy uh, and strong magnets? Massive energy and strong magnets. So if I understand correctly, it's too bad I can't uh, ask a follow-up to the asker. <laughs> but uh, if I understand correctly, that's, that's basically what we try to do now. So, you know, if I take the concept of massive energy, maybe what is meant is to go to very, very high energies and use very strong magnets. And that's exactly good thinking because that's what we had to do to build this machine. Okay. So okay. Back, in the no back in the 90s when it was proposed, um, again, I think I mentioned this briefly, but there was already a tunnel there for a previous experiment. It was a pretty big tunnel. It was maybe bigger than they needed. But people started to scratch their heads and think, oh, God, you know, digging tunnels is really expensive. How could we use the existing tunnel to get to really high energies? We, to do this, we could use super, super, super strong magnets that have never been used before. So that was what had to be done. So the, 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 the person who asked the question is definitely has a good uh, intuition because that's what we have to do. What about uh, one in space using zero gravity? <laughs> uh, now you're speaking my language. So I like to talk about the future future of collider experiments. Um, zero gravity is not really going to help us so much uh, in these types of experiments because, again, for the particles that we're colliding, gravity does not even enter into our, uh, into our collision calculations at all. And so when I collide two protons, if you were able to somehow zoom, you know, shrink yourself down to ride on a proton that was going around the Large Hadron Collider, you would not feel gravity at all. It would be so weak that you, it would be completely negligible. So the zero gravity part doesn't matter so much. But one of the benefits you could get from a space-based collider is that you wouldn't have to worry about some of the things that you worry about on Earth. So uh, we lose a, a lot of energy due to uh, so-called synchrotron radiation. When particles bend, they, they, sp they spit off a little bit of radiation. They lose energy. And this has to, you know, you have to somehow uh, uh, shield from this. 
uh, in, uh, on Earth, and we do this, you know, by putting things underground, for example. It's an easy way to do that. In space, you could just, uh, you could, you know, you could um, uh, arrange things so that it would never go in the direction of space, uh, direction of Earth, and never be a, a problem for anybody. Um, there's a, a few other benefits to having a collider based in space, and I'm a big fan of of thinking about these ideas. Um, but so far, you know, we don't we, we don't currently have any plans in the works. However, you know, I have been uh, you know I have been approached by some people who would be very interested in taking me up on my idea of putting a collider around the circumference of the moon. That would be very cool. It would be. That would be a a massive massive project. I, I would imagine. Yes. Yeah, feasible. Feasible. Not really. On on, um, you know, I like this idea because it's one of these things that is, you know, just a few decades ago would have been squarely in the realm of impossible, impossible. But now, because there are actually people that are seriously interested in going back to the moon, right? I mean, there's these, you know, I think NASA has put some kind of bounty on moon dust, you know, or or on on moon, uh, you know, if some private company can or some ownership, one uh, of the two. Yeah. Well. That's a. Yeah, I mean, I'm happy to get into the poli- the political side of this if you'd like. It's very fraught, but you know, I I hope you want to stay away from politics for this uh, for this show. But you know, the, the, the a lot of people want to go back, and it's not just NASA, it's not just ESA, it's also private companies. You know, they want to go back and maybe use for some materials for mining things like that. I personally think we should protect the moon, you know, against exploitation. But it just means that people are interested in going back to the moon, and what are they going to do once they're there? No one really has a great idea. So. Why don't we put these things together, take advantage of the fact that we could use this space, a little bit of this space that is not currently being used for, you know, for, uh, for anything at the moment, and we could build a huge particle collider that would allow us not just an incremental jump up in energy, but something really gigantic that would open up a huge amount of space because we have so, uh, sorry, a huge amount of energy range because we have so many big open questions of science that we still don't have answers to. And we are running out of so-called like big hints. In the past, we always had sort of big hints, this Higgs boson particle, right? There were some big hints that it should just be around the quote unquote around the corner in energy. This time we just have big open questions. Why is our universe made of matter rather than antimatter? That doesn't make any sense. You'd think that it would be created in equal amounts at the moment of the Big Bang, but you and I are made of matter and not antimatter. What is dark matter? What is dark energy? This is the big open question. Uh, you know, why yes. are there a certain number of particles the way they are? Why why is gravity so weak? All these things, and we don't have. You know, we, again, we don't have this hint. It's like, oh, you should just do two times the energy of the LHC. You should do four times. There's a gone. We have to go as big as possible, and it's sort of like go big or go home. So the old the idea is that. The moon collider is a fascinating one because now, because people are interested in going back to the moon, now it's just regular impossible. And regular impossible we can do. Regular impossible is only impossible right up into the moment someone makes it possible. So you said, what what is dark matter and what is dark energy? And that is a, a massive conversation. We have about six minutes before the break. Can we get started on that road, Dr. Beecham? Because Good I boy. think that when we come back, we're going to have a lot of questions on that. Yeah. Well, okay. I'm not sure if we should get into dark matter or dark energy in six minutes. Um, we talked a little bit about dark matter. Um, dark energy is even if we if we know next to nothing about dark matter, 
we know next to next to next to next to next and basically nothing about dark energy. <laughs> we just know that it exists. And dark energy is this idea, is that, in fact, it's an, you know, we observe that this is real, but we, an effect, we observe something in the universe that is, is demonstrably true, but we don't have an explanation for why it is the way it is. And it's for the following reasons. So, Back at the moment of the Big Bang, put yourself back, you know, 13.8 billion years ago at the moment of the Big Bang, everything started expanding. And in fact, right before the Big Bang, there was this moment of everything that was called inflation. Some of you have probably heard of inflationary Big Bang theory. This is our best description of uh, this. It was something that has to be put into our understanding of the origins of the universe to explain the way everything is that we observe right now. And if it's not there, it, we don't understand. We, we can't explain everything. So right before the moment of the Big Bang, the universe, the space, you know, the, the background spatial metric grid upon which everything rests, it, it expanded at such an insane rate that, it, that it's like almost mind boggling. So right at the moment of inflation, the universe expanded from, you know, from something really, really small to about the size of a soccer ball in 10 to the minus 39 seconds. Or I think it's 10 to the minus 34 seconds. I think we had one of those moments where we lost the connection again from the uh, the other side of the world. Bad luck with the internet tonight. Where did I die? Backpedal about 30 seconds. Okay. So we're talking about the 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 universe right at the right before the moment of the Big Bang. There was this thing called mm-hmm. inflation, and it happened so quickly. The universe expanded at such a rate that it was almost unfathomable. Imagine if we took a horse. And we magically inflated it to the size of the known universe now in 10 to the minus 34 seconds. That's crazy. So this is way faster than the speed of light. Anyway, so then suddenly the expansion of the universe tapered off and started going slower. It was still fast, but it was much, much slower than it was before. And then it started, it was basically going at this one rate for billions and billions of years. It was very, very nice and everything was calm and everything was great. And then about, for some reason, about three or four billion years ago from now, the universe started to speed up its expansion and no one knows why. So it's almost as though the universe was waiting for something like 10 billion years, nine or 10 billion years to suddenly then start to expand faster and faster to what we observe now. And we can't explain this. Gravity, general relativity doesn't have that built into it automatically. And so you, if you put something in by hand, it's just, you know, you, you put, you can put like something into the math for gravity and say, well, okay, maybe, you know, maybe general relativity and everything expand. Maybe this actually, you know, will explain. But there's no reason for it to be there. And as physicists, we don't like things that don't have a reason. We don't think like things that have an explanation behind them. So, but something happened a few billion years ago that the universe started expanding at a faster and faster rate. And it's so fast. The, the rate of expansion is so fast right now and it's accelerating. It's going to keep accelerating that probably the universe will keep expanding forever and ever and ever and will never slow down. And in fact, it'll get so much faster into the future that something like, you know, probably trillions of years from now, if there's anything known as planets still around. So imagine, you know, magically the the Earth might be around trillions of years from now. The sky would be completely empty and dark because you could light would never have time from anywhere else to reach us. Just a fascinating thought after a fascinating thought from Dr. James Beecham will continue right after this. 
Save your data and listen for free by calling 701-719-9703, courtesy of TalkStream Live. of overpaying for the little blue pill what if you could get the exact same results for just a fraction of the price guaranteed well now you can with sildenafil the active ingredient in the blue pill with 20 milligram generic sildenafil tablets you get the exact same results for less than two dollars per pill and again the results are guaranteed that's right absolutely guaranteed results for a fraction of the cost of the little blue pill So give your wallet a break and call us toll-free at 800-367-9583 to get your generic sildenafil delivered discreetly to your door. And of course, while saving hundreds of dollars, you'll also be saving time by saying goodbye to those long, embarrassing pharmacy lines once and for all. Again, just call 800-367-9583 to get your generic sildenafil with a 100% money-back guarantee. Getting your pills doesn't get any easier or cheaper than this, so call 800-367-9583 now. Abnormal News, I'm Brad Bernards. Residents of eight cities have been alerted that a brain-eating amoeba was found in a southeastern Texas water supply, leading one of the towns to issue a disaster declaration, according to reporting at CNN. Dr. Todd Ellerin, infectious disease specialist at South Shore Health, tells ABC News. There have only been 34 cases of free-living amoebic encephalitis over a nine- or ten-year period. It's about avoiding activities where the water goes into the nose. The Texas Commission on Environmental Quality, at the direction of the governor's office, the advisory reads. Astronomers have discovered six galaxies ensnared in the cosmic spider's web of a supermassive black hole soon after the Big Bang, according to research published Thursday and reported by ScienceAlert.com, that could help explain the development of these enigmatic monsters. Black holes that emerged early in the history of the universe are thought to have formed from the collapse of the first stars, but astronomers have puzzled over how they expanded into giants. The newly discovered black hole, which dates from when the universe was not even a billion years old, weighs in at one billion times the mass of our sun and was spotted by the European Southern Observatory. Black holes can get big, really big, but just how big? A team of researchers has come up with a plan to go hunting for them, and if they exist, they could help us solve the mysteries of how the first stars appeared in the cosmos, according to reporting in LiveScience.com. Maybe they formed directly from the collapse of gas clouds or from exotic processes in the early universe, or something even stranger. There's more news at ParaAbnormalRadio.com. I'm Brad Bernards, ParaAbnormal News. We know from uh, looking at the universe around us that there is more mass in in the universe than we can account for with the stars, the planets, etc. In fact, all the matter that we know about is about 4% of the the, the total matter in the universe. Um, The rest is dark matter or dark energy. At the incident of the Big Bang, there should have been equal quantities of matter, antimatter, which annihilated, driving the Big Bang. Mm -hmm. So, by rights, we shouldn't be here. 
because we have more matter than antimatter in our sector of the galaxy. Sporting a tinfoil hat and looking dang good in it. Into the Paranormal with Jeremy Scott. My guest, Dr. James Beecham. I'm Jeremy Scott. Our program tonight is Dark Universe. If you've uh, ever wanted to ask a question of a particle physicist, now's the time. 855-790-8255. Toll free in North America. Outside North America at 503-506-0396. International and Skype callers can get through at ITP51. All right, Dr. Beecham, enough of my interrupting. Please continue your thought, and uh, bring us home, please. So the the dark energy thing is fascinating, you know, and I think I was talking about how the universe is expanding uh, still, you know, and and that's just, again, an empirical fact that we observe uh, all of the galaxies moving away from each other. Um, But they're just, they're not moving away at a constant speed. They're accelerating, you know, they're getting faster and faster uh, as time goes on. And this is the part that's a bit weird to, to, you know, to explain. And so even back, you know, back at the, you know, back in the, in, in the, in the early days, Einstein put something into his equations called a, you know, like a constant, a cosmological constant to explain, you know, these things that we couldn't explain otherwise. And then he realized, and he decided later that's like, that was a big, he called it a big blunder, the biggest blunder of his life. But it turns out that that could be actually the truth. It turns out that there doesn't have, because he, again, he wanted an explanation. He wanted some kind of mechanism for why this was, was happening, why the universe was expanding at a faster and faster and faster rate. And again, the other options, of course, you know, it doesn't have to do that. If we observed that, for example, you know, things that are farther away are going slower uh, or, you know, or something like that, it might indicate that at some point, the universe, you know, all of the stuff in the universe, gravity, for example, would win. It would start to win again. Imagine it this way. You might have like a, uh, right at the Big Bang. So, you know, we don't know what happened before the Big Bang. Maybe there was no before the Big Bang. But everything starts to expand. And something sort of like kicked everything out to start expanding, right? There was a big sort of like kick, a big force, and it went pow. And then after the pow, eventually the pow will, will die off, right? Because then you have a lot of stuff in the universe. And all that stuff is pulling on everybody else. So the, the, you know, and no one knows exactly why, you know, no one, no one really knew for a long time whether maybe you might imagine that a maybe, maybe gravity would eventually win. And so, you know, not tomorrow or the next day, but maybe billions or trillions of years from now, the universe would end again in a so-called big crunch. So everything would expand and then it would slow down and turn around and start, you know, pulling in on each other. And then you'd have a, a contraction and eventually everything would end in a big crunch. And that would be kind of spectacular. But it turns out that we, at what we observe now, that's not going to happen. The universe will continue to expand faster and faster and faster. And this is the part that's a bit weird. And so we don't know why this is. We don't have a current explanation for it. So we call it dark energy. And it's not just a small effect, though. This has to be, you know, if you look at the total so-called energy budget of the universe, basically just an accounting of all the stuff that's happening in the universe, the stuff that's happening the most is this dark energy, something like 68% of all the stuff happening in the universe is that. The rest of it is in dark matter, regular matter, too. But dark energy is this thing that's totally bizarre and really beyond our explanation at the moment. But, you know, think about what has to happen scientifically for that to, to occur, right? If, 
if the universe is, there's something, there's some thing that's driving the expansion, the accelerated expansion of the universe. And it's not, you know, it's, it's not, uh, uh, it's not like an anti-energy thing, you know, anti-energy doesn't mean anything. There has to be some kind of intrinsic energy density to space itself, which there has to be something, you know, built into the fabric of space itself. Like at every point in space, there'd be something that's kind of driving this expansion in all directions. And that's a bit weird because that's unlike anything else we know of. It's also another indication of this so-called dark universe, right? There's something around us everywhere that is going on that you and I can't directly interact with. And we have to come up with some way to understand why it is. So there's a few different explanations as to, you know, what dark energy could be. It actually could just be a so-called cosmological constant, something that's built, you know, that's like intrinsic to space itself that is driving this accelerated expansion. Um, it could also be something, you know, a, a, a so-called another kind of scalar field, which would be a little bit similar to the Higgs boson field, this, this Higgs field that we talked about in a slightly different way that could have been around for a very long time. Um, or there could be some other idea that we still haven't thought of before, uh, yet. In fact, these other ideas are the ones that I personally think are, you know, we, we always want to keep track of these, right? Probably what happens is that we'll be able to indicate, we'll, you know, come up with some way to determine that dark energy is some kind of, you know, like a, a scalar field and we'll discover what it is and it'll be fantastic and amazing discovery. But we always need to simultaneously, uh, you know, entertain the notion that maybe we are missing something based, you know, deep in our assumptions. Like maybe we need to go back to the basic assumptions behind all of these theories and maybe we missed something. And yes, maybe Einstein missed something. I'm not saying that's what happened, but we have to leave open the possibility as honest scientists, right? So I have some colleagues that are, you know, that are working on ideas that maybe dark, you know, for example, in the case of dark matter, right? Maybe dark matter is not actually a particle. Maybe what I told you that, you know, each one of you has like a billion particles of dark matter flowing through your body. Maybe it's not actually a particle. Maybe dark matter is just some kind of emergent property that we observe in nature because we don't have a full and complete understanding of how gravity changes as it as it gets farther and farther away from the center of galaxies and maybe dark matter is in fact an emergence property of the fact that the fabric of space-time is in fact made up of quantum qubits instead it's an information theory thing instead and that's the part that starts to lose even me as an exp as a humble experimental particle physicist right but that's you know it's an example of how we we you know we need to simultaneously go down the roads of experimentation that we know and we need to you you know, we, we need to do these experiments, but we also simultaneously need to go back to our assumptions and determine if we've overlooked something. And I think that both of these directions are essential for a healthy scientific community. Do you think we'll ever understand why the universe is expanding so fast now, Dr. Beecham? Well, I certainly hope so. And I think that, you know, if we do come up, you know, again, if we were to find some, if we were to find some kind of uh, unambiguous way to determine whether dark energy is some kind of, uh, you know, it's like a scalar field, uh, or that we don't, we, that, you know, that we haven't, uh, we haven't observed yet or we can't detect yet, or if it's something else. I think it's possible we'll be able to explain that. Um, and, you know, but again, it's, it's the sort of thing that you can't really say yes or no on or give a probability on. It's just up to nature, right? It's, it's, it, nature has the answer for us somewhere. 
and it's just up to us, us as humans to keep exp- exploring, keep doing more experiments to hone in on what the answer could be. So I think, yes, we'll eventually know. Uh, I cannot say for sure when that's going to be. Is it dangerous what the Large Hadron Collider is doing, creating the conditions at the moment of the Big Bang? Is is this a little bit like time travel? Can you answer those questions? No. <laughs> I, I can answer those questions, and the answer is no, there's no danger. Um, that was uh, maybe some people remembered before the Large Hadron Collider turned on. That was a bit of, you know, uh, discussion. People like, oh, no, you're going to create a black hole and suck in the earth and that kind of a thing. <laughs> that, you know, I, I, I totally understand where those concerns come from. I thought from, maybe right? you got sucked into a black hole tonight. That's what I thought happened to you. I, you know, I, I, I think I did a few times. Yes, uh, that's, uh, <laughs> no, that that couldn't possibly be true because again, the Large Hadron Collider is currently turned off, so we can't create these you know black holes or time skips now. <laughs> but the you know, but I think that that um, you know these these kinds of experiments they really inspire a lot of uh, you know like a lot of ideas in people, and as they should, right? I mean, they inspire scientific ideas, but they also indicate that there's, you know, there's a very kind of uh, creative uh, mindset of people that are attracted to this type of experiment, which again, our species has never done something like this. You, you know, it, it, it's worthwhile thinking through all the different possibilities. The, it turns out that the idea that the Earth, that, this, that the LHC could create a black hole is again based in, on a kernel of scientific truth, but then it's a wild extrapolation to places that it's not applicable. So the real truth is that no, the, the Large Hadron Collider is not going to create a big black hole and suck in the Earth. However, we could, in principle, create something that's a so-called mini black hole or a quantum black hole. And these are tiny, tiny, tiny objects that technically satisfy the equations of, uh, you know, of, uh, to, to make a black hole. But you're talking about such a small amount of energy that there's no way for you to create anything that's going to have, that's going to make any problems. I mean, the, you know, the energies, again, we say that we're recreating the conditions of the universe after the moment of the Big Bang. But the caveat there is that it's under extremely controlled and very, very minute uh, case, you know, uh, um, uh, um, uh, limited version of that. It's almost like it's like you're sampling the conditions that were back there were back then. We the, the only way we could ever create a black hole, uh, I'm sorry, that we could create another, for example, another Big Bang, is if we had all the stuff in the universe to put into our collider, which is impossible. So there's no there's no problem with that kind of a thing. Um, for time travel, that's a bit of a different one. We can't say too much about time travel at the Large Hadron Collider. Um, unfortunately, that would be a lot of fun if we could. But there have been, I, I have heard a few ideas throughout the years that the LHC is responsible for uh, the so-called the, the Mandela effect. Um, and this is the way, you know, this is the effect that uh, people remember the past differently. Uh, and then someone, you know, uh, tells the, shows them like the Wikipedia page or like a history for something. And, and it's totally different from what they remember. Um, and some people have theorized that this is because the LHC is creating is colliding particles at such high energies that they're somehow creating skips in the space-time continuum. Um, that is also based upon nothing. Uh, I would, I trust me, if if we as physicists could control the the, the timeline that we lived in, time, the time, you know, the, the future of, of time, we would definitely not choose the current timeline that we're living through right now. So, <laughs> you know, I think that's just not not possible. Yeah, well said, well said, uh, Doctor. Uh, all right, so I understand that there's something new, uh, a new experiment. Uh, I think you alluded to this earlier, but, I mean, this is a really big deal because this is LHC on a much, much larger, grander scale. Yeah. 
Yeah. So the current plans right now, and the thing that everyone's sort of, uh, you know, not everyone, but a lot of people are, you know, preparing for would be the next step, right? Because it, like I said before, if we, you know, if we, if we have these big open questions of science and we don't have any big kind of hints, any kind of like, you know, theoretical flashlights. It's like, oh, you should look in a dark room looking for a discovery. And then the theorist has a flashlight and says, oh, it says that we should totally look over there. Go look over there. We don't have those anymore. We have to search everywhere. And that's both daunting and also totally fascinating and totally great because it allows us, it allows us as scientists to get back to the basic nature of physics, which is experimental, which is exploratory. If you knew what you were going to get in advance, you wouldn't call it an experiment. And that was true of the Large Hadron Collider. We did not know if we would find a Higgs boson. We did not know if we'd discover extra dimensions of space or black holes or any of these kind of things, quantum black holes. We'd just go to as big energy as possible to leave yourself open to discoveries that nature has in store for you. Nature is nature. We don't control. We are part of nature. We can only explore nature. And so that's the case with this next generation of collider experiment, because we have these big open questions and we just have to go as big as we can. And so we did some calculations and at CERN, it looks like what we can do within a reasonable amount of time and reasonable means on like many decades time scale. Again, these, these kinds of experiments are, you know, it's a marathon. It's not a sprint. You really have to be in it for the, the long haul. And so the next generation, we did some calculations and thought, okay, if we build another tunnel, the next generation of tunnel would be instead of 27 kilometers, it would be something like 100 kilometers around. This would allow us to get up to a certain, you know, like an, another sort of like order of magnitude, almost an order of magnitude higher in energy. And that would be a big step forward. And again, any step forward is new stuff that our species has never done before. So any step forward is awesome and is great. And this one is a great step forward because it opens up completely uncharted territory where discoveries could be hiding or not. Again, it's not up to us to decide because, you know, physics is exploratory by nature. And if we don't look there, we'll never know what's there. So that's the next generation. It's uh, currently it's dubbed the Future Circular Collider or FCC. Obviously, that name will change once the future becomes the present. But uh, that's the that's the idea. And so a lot of the you know, a lot of our studies are going on for what we would you know, what kind of measurements could we do at the future circular collider? What type of discoveries will we will we be open to? How should how we should design the detectors? It's a no brainer. It's like that that's going to you know, that's the next step in exploratory science. And so it's a it's a it's a matter of, you know, because, again, we publish most of the papers that we publish at the Large Hadron Colliders. They are evidence, and the you know we we write papers all the time. We're we're still analyzing the data that we've taken several years ago, and we'll be analyzing that for a while. Um, and at, most of these papers report the non-discovery of a particle. So does that mean that they're failures? It absolutely does not. We should have big press conferences about every single one of these papers because that is a new information. That is new information about the universe that we did not know before. Again, the LHC is something our species has never done before. Every single paper that we publish, every little corner of the data we look at, that it is, is a new place that we've never looked before. That's new information about the universe. And that's, gonna, that's the same case for any kind of future collider we make. It's like we will be doing measurements of nature, of the universe, under these conditions, no matter what, if we define a particle, that's great because, you know, then it'll allow us to expand our knowledge. But if we don't find a particle, that's perhaps even more fascinating because, as you know, from the past, 
there have been so many cases where a so-called, uh, you know, a null result or the lack of a discovery has spurred people to really go back to their assumptions and, you know, and, and, and question the foundations of what's going on. And that has led to the next step forward. So this is, for example, you know, before, uh, before, you know, photons and electromagnetism was discovered the way it was in special relativity, especially from Einstein, there people thought, you know, that photons, light, must need some kind of medium to propagate through. They thought, okay, well, light can't just go through outer space. It has to have something just, you know, like a wave in the, in the, in the, uh, the ocean. The wave needs the water to go through. People thought that light must need something to go through. And then, and this was the so-called luminiferous ether. And so they thought, okay, well, we can design an experiment to prove whether this so-called ether exists or not. And the Michelson-Morley experiment demonstrated that the luminiferous ether does not exist. There is no, this is kind of an early version of a jelly that permeates all of space. They proved that this, this luminiferous ether did not exist. And this puzzled people for a long time. And because of the lack of a discovery, this is one of the things that compelled Einstein to go back to the assumptions that everyone had about electromagnetism and about, uh, about light and to then formulate a completely radically new way of thinking about nature, which was special relativity. And 1905 was a complete game changer. None of what we do today, uh, you know, at the LHC, at anywhere else, you know, with technology, none of this could be possible without Einstein's, uh, you know, without Einstein's step forward in special relativity. And so the lack of a discovery can be just as powerful as a discovery itself. So that's the kind of, you know, that's, that's what we're looking for for the future, this so-called future circular collider. But of course, you know, those, a lot of us are also looking forward to beyond that with the next to next, you know, collider. Would it be something like the moon collider, right? If we, if we can go from, uh, you know, you don't need to know the details, but with something called 13 tera electron volts TEV at the LHC to something like 100 tera electron volts collision energy at the FCC, Maybe a moon collider, which would be something like 11,000 kilometers around the moon, maybe this would allow us to get to something like, you know, tens of thousands of TeV. That would be amazing. But then, you know, probably you have in your mind, how high do we need to go? Like, you know, do we just need to go higher and higher and higher and there's no end to what it is? It turns out, (coughs) pardon me. It turns out that there is a kind of natural end point to where we would need to go and, you know, how big of a collider and to how high of an energy we would need to really understand and really answer some of the biggest open questions of science right now. And this is the so-called Planck energy. And this is named after a guy named Max Planck, a very, very bright guy, who he took, he took a bunch of the so-called constants of nature. And these are just numbers that we measure that the universe put there for us. Again, we don't really have an explanation for why these numbers are, are what they are. They just are. Like the you know the so-called H bar. This is the this is the uh, the scale at which quantum mechanics becomes important. And then there's uh, the gravitational constant, and then there's the speed of light. These are just numbers that, that that nature chose for some reason, and we just have them. And Planck started put these constants of nature together in such a way to make certain dimensions, to make certain uh, uh, units and lengths of, of, for example, units of length and uh, of time and of energy. And this is the point at which our, beyond which our understanding of physics totally breaks down. And this would be the point, you know, so for example, a length, the Planck length is something like 10 to the minus 43 meters. <laughs> we currently can only resolve distances 
with the Large Hadron Collider, the most energetic collider that humans has ever put together, we can only resolve distances of down to 10 to the minus 18 meters. 10 to the minus 43 meters is really, really, really small. And so that's the Planck length. There's also a similar Planck, Planck time, and this is something insanely small. And there's also something called the Planck energy. And the Planck energy is something gigantically high. This would be the energy at which we would understand a lot about the universe. Some say everything about the universe because it would allow us to understand how gravity and quantum mechanics, they must have something to do with each other. There must be some connection. However, to get to the Planck energy in a, in a large Hadron Collider style collider, we would probably need to build a collider like that that circles around the outer edge of the solar system. So that's probably not going to happen anytime soon, uh, but I do leave open the possibility that in the future, someone will eventually be able to get to the Planck energy in a collider. Dr. James Beecham, uh, I don't say this often, but a hell of a show. <laughs> so I want to thank you for coming My on pleasure. the program. Uh, a, any parting words in 30 seconds or less? Uh, you know, I just want to remind people to, you know, always push yourself beyond your current limits. Don't allow yourself to get stuck in, you know, kind of like narrow tunnel thinking. Always allow yourself to be, you know, to think big and allow yourself the bravery of stepping into the unknown. Because that's really the only way that we as humans are going to move forward in science. And also, it's the best way for us to move forward in society if we stop just staying in our one context and move beyond, stretch ourselves beyond. It allows us to understand people better, and that's just going to make a better world. Well said, Dr. James Beecham. Good night, everyone. Companies that set out to change the world should stand for something, something that matters. For Tanium, it was managing and protecting the world's growing number of endpoints. Tanium empowers organizations to embrace digital transformation and change the way people both work and live. They help critical government agencies see what's coming, protect and defend five branches of the U.S. military, and more than half of the Fortune 100 rely on Tanium to manage and secure their critical assets. To learn more, visit Tanium.com. Hey, Mike, what are you doing way up on that ladder? You're going to hurt yourself. Oh, I'm trying to unclog these gutters. That's smart. I had water damage from my gutters last year. It cost me ten grand. Yo, wait, $10,000? Yeah, and from over here, it looks like water's been pouring over your clogged gutters, and it's probably doing real damage to your foundation. You need to do what I did. Get off the ladder and call Leaf Filter. Yeah, but I need to get these gutters flowing now. That's why you need to call Leaf Filter. They'll clean and realign your gutters and install their exclusive micro-mesh screen system so nothing gets in your gutters except water. So Leaf Filter protects my house from damage and means no more gutter cleaning for me? Bingo! Plus Leaf Filter has an industry-leading lifetime warranty so your gutters are covered for life. Thanks, Frank. I'm calling Leaf Filter today. Don't go another day with your home unprotected. Call 1-844-300-LEAF or go to tryleaffilter.com for your free gutter inspection. Call 1-844-300-LEAF or go to tryleaffilter.com right now for an extra 15% savings. Call 1-844-300-LEAF or go to tryleaffilter.com That's one 844 Thank you for supporting our advertisers. It keeps the show free for everyone. This statement has not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. No offense, but are you a little fat when you look in the mirror? How do you like to learn the secret to losing three to five pounds a week without joining the gym or going through any crazy diets? It's called Body Sculpt RX. 
For the last two decades, we've helped countless people lose thousands of pounds. And now it's your turn. Learn how to lose weight with one simple phone call and no prescription needed. You'll see an amazing difference in a matter of days. Don't believe us? We'll offer you a risk-free money-back guarantee. So if you're ready to start losing weight, call right now and get a free month supply with your first order of Body Sculpt RX. Call now. You have nothing to lose but the pounds. 800-395-4207. 800-395-4207. 800-395-4207. That's 800-395-4207. You've heard me talking about My Patriot Supply for a while, and things aren't getting any easier. From global conflicts and unstable supply chains, when shelves run on empty, you don't have to panic. Choose peace of mind with their three-month emergency food supply to keep your shelves and your stomach full. In an emergency, you won't have the time, resources, and ingredients to prepare your meals in the way you're used to. But you can get a leg up with My Patriot Supply. It's a three-month emergency food supply. You don't have to skimp. It's ready when you are. It's disaster-proof. And no food boredom here. 20-plus flavorful food and drink varieties. My Patriot Supply is offering a special deal for Into the Parabnormal listeners when you go to parabnormalradio.com slash food. Get your My Patriot Supply today from parabnormalradio.com slash food. That's parabnormalradio.com slash food. If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC. Member SIPC. 